Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I'm joining you all from the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey, everyone. I'm joining you from the Los Angeles area. So this week, we are chatting with Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. And she is the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace. Cannon is an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Her ministry and professional background includes serving as the senior director of advocacy and outreach for World Vision US, the executive pastor of Hillside Covenant Church in Walnut Creek, California, director of development and transformation for Extension Ministries at Willow Creek Community Church, and as a consultant to the Middle East for child advocacy issues for Compassion International. May is an author of several books, including Just Spirituality, How Faith Practices Fuel Social Action, Social Justice Handbook, Small Steps for a Better World, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Social Justice in a Complicated Age, and Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. And she's also the editor of a Land Full of God, which is a collection of essays um, written about the Holy Land. She earned doctorates in history and spiritual formation, and her PhD focused on American history with a minor in Middle Eastern studies from the University of California, Davis, focusing her dissertation on the history of the American Protestant Church in Israel and Palestine. Cannon's Doctorate of Ministry and Spiritual Formation is from Northern Theological Seminary. She holds an MDiv from North Park Theological Seminary, an MBA from North Park University's School of Business and Nonprofit Management, and an MA in Bioethics from Trinity International University. And she's a really wonderful friend and partner of Peace Catalyst, so really excited um, to hear from her. Mm, Yes, yeah, quite an impressive resume. So today's uh, peace quote is pulled from a four-part webinar series that um, Dr. May Cannon contributed to that was hosted by the Islamic Council of New England um, in partnership with several others. And the focus of the conversation was essentially on the sanctity of the Holy Land and how, how we can share the land. And so she says... A vision of a shared Jerusalem, a sacred city for two peoples and three faith traditions, where all Jews and all Palestinians have access to worship, to freedom, and Christians, Muslims, and Jews would be able to worship where human rights and dignity are honored in this sacred city we call holy. Welcome, May, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're so honored to be having this conversation with you and um, learning from you about, yeah, peace building in the Middle East and um, and in the U.S. as well. Um, So would you mind sharing just a little bit about yourself and your journey of getting to where you are today as the executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace, among many other things. Um, But if you would mind just sharing a little bit about yourself, that would be great. 
Sure. Good to be with you, Becca. And um, I have great respect for Peace Catalyst. You know, Rick Love was a dear friend of mine. And so exciting to be joining you in this capacity. Um, Yeah. So um, my uh, vocational journey, I was called to be a pastor and was serving at a church um, first in the Chicago area and then in California. And I always kind of considered myself an avocational academic. So I had several master's degrees and my husband always teased me instead of jack of all trades and master of none, he would say master of all trades and doctorate of none. And so I ended up going to work on my PhD, which was kind of how I was introduced to the Middle East, which is why that background is helpful. So I was serving at a church in California. I had my first book coming out about global social justice issues. Um, It's called Social Justice Handbook, and it was about poverty and race and gender. And I was in a PhD program, and I thought I was pretty smart. You know, I thought I knew something about the world. And then I went on this spiritual pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and we actually entered into what I I thought I was entering into Israel from the Allenby Bridge from Jordan. And one of the Israeli security people said to me, um, are you going to the West Bank? And I said, no, not even knowing that I was literally in the West Bank. <laughs> and I was so kind of ignorant of ge- geographic terms and on that Um, spiritual pilgrimage to the Holy Land, I saw signs that said free Palestine. And I was one of those churchgoers who thought Palestine was a map in the back of my Bible. I knew nothing about the history of the Palestinian people. You know, and here I had this book coming out about global social justice issues. And there was this people group that have been struggling for independence, you know, for decades. And my heart was really broken, uh, in large part because I heard a lecture um, from Bashar Awad at Bethlehem Bible College, and he told his family story and the story of the Palestinian people and the Nakba in 1948 and the resulting refugees. And now when you go to my offices at CMAP, right above my desk, there's a picture of me and Bashar in that moment, and I had was just overcome. There were tears in my eyes, and you can see it in the picture when my heart was broken. And so I ended up going back to my dissertation advisor and asking him if I could do my dissertation on Israel. And so my PhD is on the history of American Protestant engagement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And that was really a life turning point and really my second calling. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I um, I'm just struck by so many things in the story, the turning point for you. Um, and I've, it seems like there's a common theme in, um, people that we've talked to in the past, Greg and Todd from Telos, um, similarly were sharing about the impact of space and place and, and going somewhere and seeing something with a completely different lens. And then that being like a pivotal turning point, um, so, yeah, I'm just noticing a lot of common themes that we have um, discussed a bit in the past with around the same issue. So it's interesting. Um, but anyways, so wondering if you can describe the overall approach that um, Churches for Middle East Peace has to building peace in the Middle East. 
Yeah, thank you, Allie. Um, Churches for Middle East Peace has been around almost 40 years, so we're excited to celebrate that marker um, in a couple of years. And one of the things we talk about a lot is what it means to have holistic perspectives towards peace building in the Middle East. So we're very, very intentional about not using that word balanced. You know, one of the first things people ask or say is, you know, you have such a balanced perspective, meaning that you are sensitive to Israeli perspectives and you're sensitive to Palestinian aspirations and needs. And so I understand the intention behind the word balanced, but um, actually that term I don't think is the most helpful because it neglects to acknowledge significant power differentials. You know, when we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you have um, Israel having been established in 1948, having a very powerful army that in large part is supported by, you know, U.S. funding and by um, U.S. military support. And so you have a state with an army, and then you have Palestinian people, two million of which are living in Gaza, that's completely closed down by a blockade, you know, and by um, walls. And, you know, you have Palestinian people, you know, more than 2.5 million living in the West Bank, living under military control, literally living under an occupation. And so we say, what's it mean to have a holistic perspective, not a balanced perspective? And so what we mean by that is actually holding in tension several different truths. And so we are very committed to a multi-narrative approach. And what we mean by that is there's not just one Jewish perspective and one Israel, you know, one Palestinian perspective. Um, and we don't only work on Israel-Palestine. We work in Syria and we work on Yemen and we work in northern Iraq. And I just got back from a trip to Armenia. Um, and so... Any conflict that we're looking at, there are multiple perspectives of different people groups. And so acknowledging that conflict is not monolithic, um, a friend of ours, Sami Awad, who's a peace builder, often says, there are two sides to this conflict. It's not Israelis and Palestinians. It's those who are working for peace and those who are not. And so how do we honor the historic presence of Jews in the land for thousands of years? And how do we acknowledge you know, Palestinian historical narrative, um, which also goes back you know, there were Arabs present at the time of Pentecost, you know, which we read about in Acts chapter two. So this whole idea of multi-narrative is kind of one side of the coin. And then the other side is we do engage in advocacy. And so we focus on um, the sustainability of the Christian community, on humanitarian and economic assistance. And so specific to Israel-Palestine, we have to talk about the economic differential between Israelis uh, and between Palestinians. You know, the per capita income, for example, in Israel proper uh, is 10 times more than that for people living in Gaza. And so when you talk about access to resources, you know, that would be economic and humanitarian uh, concerns. And then our third advocacy priority is human rights. And so we talk a lot about justice and equality and human rights. And what's it mean that Israeli settlers living in the West Bank have protections by civil law because they're citizens of the state of Israel, but Palestinians living in the West Bank are actually under Israeli military law. And we think that's a human rights issue. And so a lot of times when we advocate for human rights for Palestinians, people will say, oh, you're just a Palestinian solidarity group. And actually we're not. We're a peace building group that says we don't want to in any way negate Jewish ties to the land or Israeli concerns or fears. We want to acknowledge those and um, 
heed those and listen to the stories you know, of Jewish Israelis while also lauding human rights for Palestinians. Thank you. Wondering if you could explain um, explain a, a bit further the role specifically that advocacy plays in the U.S. Sure. So at CMAP, we say educate, elevate, advocate. And one of the challenges we have in the American church, as I am an example of, is that many American Christians are very ill-informed about what's happening in the Middle East or were informed with only one perspective instead of multiple perspectives. And so we focus a lot on education. Um, and you know, then we focus on elevating the voices of those who are committed to peace in the Middle East, uh, Christians and otherwise. And there's incredible people in um, Palestine. There's incredible people in Israel who are advocating for peace, you know, um, not only for their own self-interest, but for the interest of others, which is really a beautiful thing. And then advocacy um, advocacy is multifaceted. I write about this in Beyond Hashtag Activism. I won't go through like the five different types of advocacy, but you can do legal advocacy, political advocacy, social advocacy, economic advocacy, um, and spiritual advocacy. Those are the five. And advocacy is about seeking to use our resources and our voices to bring about change and to respond to injustices. And so CMAP actually exists as an advocacy organization. Our goal is to shift U.S. policies towards the Middle East so that the U.S. is a constructive player instead of causing more division. Um, I just came back from Armenia, and one of the things I was so struck by is how American politics change the shape of what things look like in the Middle East. And they change literally the lives of men, women, and children based on policies that we have thousands of miles away where we're often ill-informed Ill about the effects of our policies on the ground. And so one just example of that is I was always taught that the American government didn't acknowledge the Armenian genocide because there was a lack of information and education about it. And I learned in Armenia that's fundamentally not true. Like, uh, Henry Morgenthau was actually a member of the cabinet under Roosevelt, and he also was in the Wilson administration, you know, in the early 20th century. And he wrote books about the Armenian genocide, and he was at one of the highest levels of the American government. And yet the U.S. government didn't acknowledge the Armenian genocide until the Biden administration. Congress acknowledged it before, but our first president to acknowledge the Armenian genocide was President Biden. Um, and so that's an example of American, you know, policies. Um, and in large part, that was because we didn't want to upset Turkey because the Ottoman Empire, which later became the state of Turkey, were the perpetrators of the Armenian genocide. And so politics played this huge role, which has affected the lives of millions of Armenians. And so that's an example of what, you know, political advocacy might look like. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. And Given that, you know, CMEP has been mostly focused on, on this advocacy, um, what, how would you describe the impact that you've seen um, over the years? And, um, you know, what kind of movements or shifts have you seen in the overall picture of Middle East peace as a result, if you can make that direct connection? <laughs> sure. Well, Often when we're recruiting people to support our work at Churches for Middle East Peace, our recruitment tool is about having hope for the future when we don't see immediate change. And so 
Um, we're often encouraged by other global conflicts where you don't necessarily see the results. Um, you know, nobody thought apartheid would fall in South Africa, and it was actually one of the darkest times in terms of realities in South Africa right before apartheid fell. And so we live in hope and in prayer, you know, that an occupation will be brought to an end. And so some of our work <laughs> in terms of its efficacy, we don't see, um, you know, but we believe uh, that we're honoring God and seeking to be faithful and that ultimately um, peace will come on the horizon. But some of the impact I can say that I know we and other movements have had um, include changing the conversation in the church. You know, I formerly worked for World Vision, which has incredible programs in the Middle East. And a decade ago, um, occupation was kind of a dirty word on Capitol Hill. It was the technical geopolitical term, you know, the military occupation of the occupied territories. Um, but now that term is commonplace. And in fact, uh, a lot of the conversation has moved beyond occupation and is asking the question, is what happening in Palestine apartheid? You know, and CMEP, we have 34 member communions and all of our member denominations have to agree on our policy position. So we're having conversations about why is the question of apartheid even being asked? But our groups have different um, ideas or thoughts about if that term is constructive or not. But the fact that occupation is no longer a question, um, that's just commonly understood, that's progress. And so that's one example. Um, I think for CMEP, our global influence, we're a very small organization, um, but our global influence has increased so much so that we're now having meetings with members of state. We just hosted a meeting earlier this year for King Abdullah, uh, the king of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, and have been asked by the Jordanians to continue to work with them, with American church leaders. You know, I just came back, you know, in Armenia, we met with... Um, uh, the deputy foreign minister. And so, you know, we're meeting with foreign ministers of states, we're meeting with heads of state. And so our influence at that level is much more significant than our size of being so small. Um, and I think, you know, the role in the world of religious actors to contribute to diplomacy uh, is one of the places where we've had the greatest impact. You know, we meet with the White House, um, we meet with the State Department. We do a lot of advocacy on Capitol Hill in Congress. And so the fact that we're a significant part of the conversation, I think, shows that our work is having an effect. And those are all kind of broad, big pictures. But then there's the small little stories that we often can't write about in our reports or our newsletters. You know, one of our greatest accomplishments this year is there was a, a young woman who actually has cancer who lives in Gaza. And we were able to advocate to the U.S. government because she could not get a permit to enter into Israel for medical treatment for cancer. And so we used our connections with the U.S. government and they worked with the Israelis to actually get her permits. And so now she's able to travel to Jerusalem to receive cancer treatment. And we don't publish those stories in our weekly bulletins. You know, those are the types of things we're doing behind the scenes. But if we're not contributing to peace in the big picture, at least by God's grace, we made a difference in the life of that one little girl. Wow. That is, that is super, super powerful. Um, yeah. So bringing it down to ground level, I want to talk about your book beyond hashtag activism comprehensive justice in a complicated age. And in that book, you take readers beyond hashtags into meaningful engagement on issues that we might care about. And you give people a framework 
for how to channel passions into effectively caring for our neighbors and the world around us. So can you give um, any sort of guidance or, yeah, can you, can you offer some insight to our listeners of how, how each of us could and should um, address the domestic and international injustices of our day practically? And, you know, what's, what's the first step? Um, how do we determine the next steps after those, that first step? And yeah. And if you want to talk a a bit about your book, I'd love to, to hear a little bit more. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I think, you know, one of the first things that many of us, myself included, and I'm in this work, right, is that it's so easy to get overwhelmed. It's so easy to feel like there's so many justice issues or where do I even start? Or, you know, we hear from a lot of churches or, or Christians in the United States, we have enough issues in our own city. Why would we pay attention to what's happening in the Middle East? And I think, you know, understanding that each of us as individuals and each of us as communities, be it a small group or a church or a group of people that have come together around a common issue, we're not all called to do everything, but we're all called to do something. And so I think stepping out of the mindset that it's our responsibility, you know, Eugene chose a friend of mine and what's the title of his book? Something like the world is not ours to save or something like that. (laughs) Like, you know, it's not on our shoulders to solve every problem. And so I think the first step or a first place to start is to pray and to seek discernment individually and with people who walk in our lives with us on how is God uniquely calling each of us to engage or to respond. And for some of us, it's going to be a singular issue. And for others of us, it's going to be engaging and responding to issues when we encounter them. And so all of our lives look so differently. You know, some of us are, you know, moms that are staying home and raising kids and being an advocate of justice is about educating your children so that they know how to welcome people who are different from them. And, you know, just the work that we do in our own homes is such a significant job, if you will, you know, of shaping uh, future generations. And for some of us, you know, it's um, engaging on Capitol Hill and going to meet with members of Congress. And so I think that whole question of what's God uniquely calling me or my community to do uh, is really a starting point. And so um, I wrote about this a lot, actually. Beyond Hashtag Activism was meant to be a follow-up to my first book that was called Social Justice Handbook, the subtitle of which is Small Steps for a Better World. And I think taking away the pressure that we all have to solve every major crisis, but just knowing that taking small steps in the right direction makes a difference is a good place to start. And in Social Justice Handbook, I write about kind of a nine-step process of moving from apathy to advocacy. And so What's it mean for us to allow ourselves, World Vision, um, one of the founders used to say, break my heart for the things that break the heart of God. And so for us to allow ourselves to be emotionally invested and to allow our hearts to be broken, that then often motivates us to engage and to respond to needs that we're seeing in our community and around the world. And so I think that's a great place to start. Oh, that's so beautiful and so practical for all of us, I'm sure, to reflect on that. Um, So thank you for sharing. And yeah, and it's amazing to hear the different ways that CMEP is, um, yeah, is working towards that end of shalom in our world and taking those practical steps and also 
um, equipping people to do that. I know because I'm somewhat involved in CMEP's um, <laughs> advocacy locally. And so it's really wonderful to, um, yeah, to understand that impact and the role um, that each of us has to play. And um, so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about I know that you have also started the Network of Evangelicals for the Middle East, which I'm also a part of, um, and, you know, trying to create the space for evangelical leaders um, specifically to work together towards a more holistic perspective and engagement with Israel and Palestine and the broader Middle, Middle East. Um so from your perspective, you know, what unique role do evangelical leaders play in the Middle East? And how have you seen maybe some changes in that role over time? Um, and maybe what are some like new or continued changes that you you personally would like to see for evangelical leaders moving forward and how, um, yeah, and how this network could be a catalyst for those changes? Yeah, thank you for that, Becca. And so grateful that you're on the leadership team for NIMI, the Network of Evangelicals for the Middle East, which we call NIMI. And so I think um, I think the work of that group is very, very exciting. Um, I, I'm an evangelical. Um, I often in this moment in our political reality say not that kind of evangelical. I think evangelical has gotten a really negative um perception kind of in public media. And, you know, when I was hired at CMEP, uh, Church's Middle East Peace is Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic. There are a few evangelical groups, but it's really more broadly ecumenical. It's not, uh, evangelicals are the minority in that group. And so I was so excited about NIMI, this network, because I'm ordained as an evangelical pastor. It's one of the few evangelical denominations that ordains women. So in evangelical spaces, because I'm a female pastor, I'm often starting at a deficit because there's a lot of conservative evangelicals that would say I'm not honoring God by having the mantle of pastoral leadership. Um, so that aside, <laughs> um, one of the things I think Mimi really allows for that's so critical is evangelicals care very deeply about the scripture and about undergirding theology that motivates what we do. It motivates our actions, the way we perceive the world, the way we engage in the world. And, you know, when you work ecumenically, theology is so different. You know, one of the things I often tease about the 34 denominations at CMEP is they don't agree on anything. They don't agree on Jesus. They don't agree on the Bible. They don't agree on the Holy Spirit. They don't agree on is communion transubstantiation or consubstantiation, you know, <laughs> all these kind of theological questions. And so CMEP is a practical coalition of Christian groups that do come together to agree on policy positions, but we're limited in our ability to talk theology because you know, the origins of those Christian traditions are so different. Whereas the network of evangelicals for the Middle East are coming together around, you know, what I would say are like the four primary principles of evangelicalism. David Bebbington writes about them, you know, the premacy of the value of the cross and salvation through Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit and rebirth, in, you know, as a Christian um, the value of scriptures as being the inspired word of God and then missional engagement in the world. Um, and so what I love about Nimi is that 
evangelicals who have very different political perspectives, very different exposure to the Middle East can come together and can talk about what's it mean to honor God and to honor people and how's that relate to the Middle East. And that type of work is very, very different because it's theological. It's, um, you know, we do Bible studies, we do, um, we pray together a lot. I mean, we certainly pray at CMEP, but ecumenical prayer looks very different than from within a, a particular community. And so, you know, to answer the question of what role evangelicals play, in large part, um, the role of evangelicals uh, in political engagement, uh, particularly white evangelicals in the past, you know, five, 10 years has been very one-sided, um, very supporting of one political party over the other. Um, increasingly, white evangelicalism has become very, very conservative and even fundamentalist. And so in general, white evangelicals engage in questions about the Holy Land in a very one-sided way, uh, typically being unilaterally pro-Israel. And so, in other words, if you want to honor God, you have to support all of the actions of the state of Israel. And I am a believer in God. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a believer in the Bible. But I fundamentally believe the modern nation state of Israel is not the same as the biblical story of the Israelites of the Hebrew scriptures. And so separating modern nation states from this story of the Jewish people that we read about in the scriptures, I think, is a critical place that we have to start. And honestly, the vast majority of evangelicals don't. So you have churches across the United States that are evangelical churches that send mission money to settlements, to Jewish communities that are in settlements. For those of you who might not know, settlements are Jewish communities that are actually located in Palestinian territory, in land that was designated you know, to be the future state of Palestine. And so well-meaning Christians want to honor God. They want to support the Jewish people and they send money because they think they're helping, you know, poor Jewish children to have a playground, but they don't know that that playground is being built on private Palestinian land and is causing poverty and, you know, is taking uh, away from this other people group. Um, and, and so often, you know, the message to evangelicals is, please pray for Israel. Please support the Jewish people. But as we support the Jewish people and as we pray for Israel, let us not cause harm or injustice or take land or, you know, have military control or let us also pray for Palestinians and care for the needs of their Palestinian neighbors. And so I think just that juxtaposition the work for evangelicals is so critical because in general, evangelicals have been so one-sided and often honestly cause more harm than good. I really like, and I want to highlight the connection that you made there between theology and um, like practice and, and real world implications, because I feel like the temptation um, just as, as you were talking would be, well, I mean, we're kind of in our own little bubble and what do I, how does, you know, my particular views on Israel and the role that they may or may not play in the end times and like, you know, all of, all of that heady stuff actually relate to, to the conflict today? Like, does it even, does it even matter for me to consider another perspective or to complicate my view of it? And then, um, yeah, you just gave like a very practical answer to that question. Like, yes, likely our ideology and our beliefs and theology does 
um, does, it carries weight, you know, and it, it has, um, real world implications. So I just appreciate that you, um, made that connection. So there's a specific example, Allie, you might be familiar. Um, vice president Pence was the first vice president in the history of the United States to ever speak before the Knesset in Israel. Mm. And it's worth looking at his speech because the subtext is there was a lot of language that was used and I'm not quoting directly, but some of the main themes were about the idea that Israel was good and their Arab neighbors or their Muslim neighbors are evil. And that's, undergirded with this false theology. When we go back all the way to the children of Abraham, Isaac was blessed and Ishmael was cursed, which honestly, when you read the scriptures, that's not true. When Haggai was rejected by Abraham and in the wilderness with her son Ishmael, she cried out to God and God didn't say you're evil. God didn't ignore her. God responded to her Mm -hmm. and actually blessed her and heard her cry. And so this false theology that the Jewish people, as the descendants of Isaac are good and blessed and the, you know, descendants of Ishmael, the Arab people or Muslims, you know, are evil is fundamentally a theological issue that plays out in our politics. So that's just another example Mm. of what you were just talking about. Um, And I'd, I'd recommend for people, I pulled together a book called a land full of God that has 30 different perspectives of different American Christians. And one of the authors for that is a gentleman named Tony Maloof, who's a theologian. And he wrote a book called Arabs in the shadow of Israel. It's just a fabulous book that talks about the issue that I was just referring to. Yeah. Thanks for for sharing that and making that connection, I think it's it's so important to recognize, um, yeah, the role that that theology plays and how it really does play out in practical, um, real world scenarios that affect people's lives. Thank you so much, May. What what would you like to leave our audience with um, as we close? Yes, I I would love for people to take a look at our work. If you're willing, go to our website www.cmep.org stands for Churches for Middle East Peace. We have a lot of educational opportunities. You know, I mentioned that book, A Land Full of God. We're doing a mini course on it coming up in October and November. Um, and if you know you miss it, uh, it'll be recorded and you can find it on YouTube afterwards. But um, we'd invite you to engage in our work, learn with us. I mean, I'm an academic, but I'm learning all the time. You know, every time I spend time in the Middle East or when we have conversations with different people, you know, I think if we're willing to enter on this journey together, to learn together and then to allow ourselves to be open for God to transform our hearts and our minds, that ultimately that's what will bring peace. Um, And so that's the invitation is to consider joining us on that journey of transformation. That's great. Thank you so much, May good to be together. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a great, great conversation. And I love that you two know each other and have collaborated in the past. Um, that's, that's super neat. It was my first time meeting with her and, um, getting to hear a bit of her journey. I think, one of the things that really stood out to me was um, just the humility that she carries, the humility that her story possesses of like how she came to where she is now and just admitting that um, there was a time when she had 
these um, blind spots areas and we are, and just acknowledging that we all have blind spots. Um, we might think that we know the whole story or we know quote both sides, but um, you know, Dr. Cannon pointed out like it, there aren't just two sides, first of all, and especially um, in Israel, Palestine and likely in, in, I don't know, in every conflict, in many conflicts. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess I'm just, I'm still thinking about that of like, where are those blind spots for me? And probably, I don't know, because they're blind spots. Um, and just the power of going and seeing and experiencing and that being like a catalyst for, um, just uh, life-changing moments. And I feel like I've said that before, but there's just, yeah, there is something about being in a place and interacting with people, hearing real stories. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I really enjoyed hearing um, about her, her origin story. Yeah, that's, yeah, me too. And that's such a great point about blind spots and how we can um, yeah, like really be transformed through going and seeing and hearing and, and talking to people. And um, yeah, and I think it's, it really is a continuous learning journey. I mean, mm. especially in this context, I think um, there's so much to, to know. And I think um, I really appreciated what Dr. Cannon was sharing about holistic um, engagement, because, mm. you know, you just mentioned there aren't two sides. There are so many different groups within this this context who are all trying to, or wanting to live in, you know, safety and peace um, and human rights. So I think, yeah, it's really, I really liked what she was saying about um, not balance, but holistic um, engagement and perspective. And, and that requires a lot of, yeah, listening and learning from different people and also I love what you're saying about being open to learning what our blind spots are because sure. like we may not see them but um as long as we're willing to to recognize them when they do come up and um have the humility to to engage on that level really appreciated that emphasis of holistic peacemaking and I think one one other thing that I drew out from our my time our time with her um, was just and I actually as I'm thinking back I don't know if she actually said this but um, but just the principle of starting where you are um, that you know we're all planted in a certain place and we have um, certain cards in front of us I guess and so playing off of those, you know, in the context of peace building, as we're thinking about, you know, um, peace building our local communities. Yeah. Just starting where, starting where we are. And I'll have to listen back because I'm actually not sure what, um, sparked that thought, but I wrote it down in my notes and I'm, yeah, still kind of thinking about that. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was like, yeah, the practical advice she was giving about like, where do I start? And it's like looking around, where you are and, and what's happening um and maybe like what's yeah like what's our sphere of of influence like who is in our network that we can right into that journey yeah and I think it's it's that kind of practical advice is so helpful and I'm really looking forward to 
continuing to read her book about, um, yeah, the social justice handbook, but also beyond hashtag activism. And, and yeah, it's been so, so cool to be a part of that, um, the network of evangelicals for the Middle East, um, and to see some of that kind of collaboration taking place and, you know, giving evangelicals a space to kind of like learn and grow together, but also create vision for, um, yeah, what does holistic engagement look like on Israel and Palestine um, and the broader Middle East? And how do we faithfully pursue that as um, as Christians, as followers of Jesus? And um, yeah, and create a community that can, can really do that together. So I'm really, really, yeah, excited to see what God does and grateful for that group. And um, yeah, praying for for all of us as we try to engage holistically on this issue. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.